You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARKU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Look, the more folks are getting the services they need from government, the more okay they're going to be, you know, paying their taxes, which means a more high functioning government. You know, this is a virtuous cycle. And, you know, I think that's, I think part of what the administration is acknowledging is, look, trust in government has been frayed. And Mm -hmm. a, a lot of that has to do with the challenges associated with the pandemic. And, you know, we've got to start rebuilding that. And I think the EO is part of that, it's part of that process. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. There are so many really interesting initiatives happening in the public sector technology space right now, from the recent executive order prioritizing customer experience to the future of work in government. If you really, truly love it, there hasn't been a better time to work in this industry. A lot of this was accelerated and changed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but I think that has really just escalated the importance of organizational resiliency, which has really emerged as a leading trend in 2022. But what are some of the other foundational pieces we should be looking at as we get into this fiscal year and the next? To speak to some of these, I've asked Mark Lee, the Executive Vice President for Global Public Sector at ICF International, to join me for a discussion. Mark leads the team that supports ICF's public sector customers by providing advisory and implementation services in numerous fields, including health, technology, social programs, communications, and security. He has experience supporting a wide range of clients in addressing environmental, health, regulatory, information technology, and policy challenges, and has been recognized by Washington Exec as a top public sector leader to watch in both 2020 and 2021. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. One of the things I'm really interested to know as we kick this off, obviously the past couple of years have been very different for everyone, including someone in your role. What have been some of the biggest things that you've learned as you've looked to navigate the new normal, as you've worked with government, but also as you've looked to lead your teams at ICF? Yeah, you know, it's there's really been a number of things. I think we've all learned a lot the last couple of years. Um, I think both in our work and personal lives, you know, global pandemic uh, has the tendency to do that. You know, <laughs> I think, um, you know, first, you know, I think with our, our clients and, you know, just generally how we support, we do a lot of work in the, in the health, public health sector. And I think we've seen a lot about what the value of having the right data at the right time and getting it in the right people's hands. And then also the cost of not doing that right. So I think that's certainly been, uh, you know, brought into you know pretty clear focus for all of us. Um, you know, I think the benefits of technology, you know, the fact that we were able to flip a switch and the whole world more or less went to work from home with, you know, basically no heads up. I think we all see the power in that. But we've also seen some of the stresses that's put on, you know, some of the aging infrastructure and, and the, the places that we still need to do better. 
And I think, you know, the challenges in communicating essential information in a, you know, a clear and coherent way, how important that is, and then what happens when you don't do that. So I think those are all been sort of things as we look at what our clients are dealing with, uh, sort of broadly speaking, we've seen all that. And I think, you know, you also look at all the workforce opportunities and challenges this has also provided. You know, the, the, the fact that all of us, you know, the federal government and you know, all of us who work in that, you know, supporting that sector have been able to broaden where we can bring, bring staff from is uh, that's liberating. You know, I think, you know, we've, we've the talent pool in the D.C. area is a lot of people competing for that talent. So it can sometimes be hard to meet our clients needs. And now that we're not, you know, in a lot of cases as bound to that, it's really helped. And I think, you know, especially given the fact that, you know, we're dealing with, you know, a kind of unprecedented uh, job market. And I think our our clients are seeing the same types of things. You know, they're they're you know, they have some their own challenges in, in retaining and, and recruiting new staff and their ability to, to reach out a little more broadly, I think, has been a, a real benefit. That's interesting. So at I, you're saying at ICF, you guys have been able to capitalize on kind of a more opened aperture in terms of a talent pool. Have you seen government being able to do that? Or if you haven't, do you think they might be able to uh, at the federal level specifically? Yeah, you know, I, I am probably not seeing it as day to day as obviously many of the you know government leaders are, but it does seem like they are, you know, they, they, they're they're being more flexible. I think they were a little behind mm-hmm. the private sector in their uh, willingness at times, or maybe I shouldn't even say willingness because they did have programs to allow staff to do it, but they were fairly bureaucratic. Like you had to go through a lot of approvals and it would limit you to certain days and things, you know, you know, very strict schedules. And honestly, that's, you know, when we talk to staff, that's not what, you know, today's new staff are looking for. They want a lot more flexibility. And I, and I you know, from talking to you know government leaders that I know, they, there has been some loosening there, which I think will certainly help them recruit and retain talent. But you know, I think there, you know, there are certain you know, when you run an inf- you know, a bureaucracy that's as big as the federal government, you know, change takes a little bit more time. So I still think they're working through some of that. But I, I think the trend line's in the right direction. You you've touched on kind of how the uh, kind of the workforce is is evolving. I, I factor that into the future of government work and and how they take a look at how they're going to get things done over the over the course of the next five, 10 years, um, and maybe beyond. And I think if anything, the pandemic has really just accelerated that. But when I look at the future of government work, I think of it across three different theaters. It's it's work, workforce, and workplace. We touched on workforce a little bit, but as we get into work, what are some of the key areas that you think government is really trying to prioritize or should prioritize in the form of whether it's it's intelligent automation, AI? What are some of the, the big buckets of things that, that government should be looking at right now? You know, I think the I mean, certainly there's always evolving technologies, always new you know analytics platforms, new development platforms. Those things are always changing. They're always going to change. It's just the nature of technology in our society. I think the biggest opportunity, though, for the government, and you'll see some uh, parts of the government that are, are you know starting to lean into this, but it's understanding that you know technology is more than just the development of that technology that you, you, you know, there's, there's the whole process at the beginning where 
understanding the problem, the needs that you're trying to solve for, that's that can be more complicated than it seems. And you know, sometimes you know, we'll find that the problem that a client thinks they have, when you really dive into it and, and start peeling back the layers, you realize actually that problem's a little different than what they've said. And if they had just written an RFP based on their initial thoughts, they probably wouldn't have gotten the right solution. So I think you know, understanding that, you know, and sometimes that's an understanding of the mission or the domain that they're working in. You know, if they're working in energy, say, understanding sort of the nuances of that market. You know, the other, so that's sort of, you know, making sure the technology and the mission and domain are connected. But the, the third leg of that stool is really understanding the, the, the people part of it. Now, if it's an internal government process, understanding the users of those systems, you know, what kind of work they're trying to do, how they interact with these systems, what their expectations are, what their level of technology proficiency is. Um, and if the citizens are the ultimate, you know, end user, you know, have you really understood that citizen experience? And I think this is where the recent, you know, executive order really plays in, where you can see that the administration has has noted that as being a, a clear gap that we need to spend more time talking about. And I'm really hopeful that we'll start thinking about what technology can do for us in more of a balanced no way and not just focusing on the ones and zeros, which obviously the technology itself is critical, but it doesn't really work if the other parts aren't really working as well. And I, I think that's something that you know we're seeing in certain client sectors. I think you know we've clients at FDA that are really leaning into that and seeing some of that at the National Cancer Institute. And yeah, I'm sure there's some others, but um, I'm really excited about as more CIOs and more mission leaders really kind of lean into that partnership together. I think there's some really amazing things they can do. So you touched on something that I, I kind of boiled down to being more industry focused. And w when we look at public sector or government, even, I think of them as the industry of industries. You, you said it could be an energy focus. It could be a lot of different things. And with each of these focuses comes a specialty uh, domain knowledge that organizations can hopefully support government in. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think public-private partnerships are so important. I'm curious to know, what are you guys doing at ICF to kind of help enable government? Because I think of that as a really strong way that that the private sector can partner with the government sector is sometimes just enabling them and helping them understand some of the things that they should be looking for too. Because it, it, it shouldn't just be a, a selling motion, right? Sometimes it's a, it's a partnership and an education motion. I mean, we hope it's always a partnership. I think that's yeah. certainly when things work best. It certainly is. You know, I, the way we, you know, we grew up, you know, the company was founded in 1969. And really for the first, you know, 35, 40 years of the company, we really built our reputation on doing advisory work and having deep domain expertise. So that's really kind of our, our legacy and something that, you know, many of us have been at the company for a long time. You know, I've been there for coming up on 25 years you know, that we really, that's near and dear to our heart. And we really, we value what that can mean for our clients. And I think, you know, what we have seen is that, you know, as, as ICF has invested more in expanding our technology capabilities, that being able to marry the domain expertise with the technology, along with the understanding of sort of change management and, and, and design has really allowed us to sometimes serve as like translators between the technology clients and the mission clients. And I think, you know, that's kind of getting at what you were, were touching on. I think that's the unique value that 
understanding the mission can bring. And I think it requires that, you know, the CIOs are engaging the mission, but it also requires that the mission's engaging the CIOs, right? They can't just, you know, you know shadow, you know, I guess you'll hear CIOs refer to it as shadow IT, you know, all the, all the IT dollars that are being spent that aren't flowing through their mm-hmm. organization. You know, a lot of times they're not getting the benefit of, you know, economies of scale. They're not getting the benefit of licenses that CIO might have already uh, paid for. You know, they're not getting maybe the security that they need built into these things, which, you know, with all the hack, you know, hacking and, you know, cybersecurity concern, that's a big issue. So I think for us, it's really, you know, that being able to serve as that translator and that partner to, to help, you know, because they're not speaking the same language. If you're a, you know, research scientist, you might not understand what all the different low code platforms, for instance, can do. And you need somebody that can put that into terms that, that makes sense to you and, and vice versa. That, you know, that CIO needs to understand the kinds of things you're doing with data and the kinds of problems you're needing to solve. And um, I think that's a place that, you know, a, a firm like ICF can really help. Well, it, I like that you said it's it's vice versa, too. I think on the private sector side of things, you have to understand the mission orientation of government, right? What are their what are their true challenges and how can you how can you help them? I think that's an important aspect of it because it's, it's going to be very different if you're not used to working with government and you're you're dealing with other commercial industries it's, it, it could be very different it feels like a different planet sometimes um i i'm curious you mentioned you've been at icf for 25 years it kind of begs the question what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen working in the public sector space over that period of time and kind of i, I think of right now is really a, a golden age of working within government technology because on the government side of things, they're they're really shifting towards being more results oriented, very much aligning to driving towards what the public sector or private sector has shown to to work and really adopting some of the emerging technologies in a more agile way. So it feels like a really good time to be in in this space. But what have you seen from a change perspective over the past 25 years? That's a really good question. You know, it, it, it often, you know, really, all, it, as with anything, it depends on, you know, your view depends on where you sit. So, you know, if I was a, as a, as a junior staffer growing up within the organization, you know, my background's in, in public health and uh, environment. And, you know, I worked, my, my biggest clients were EPA for the first, you know, 10 years or so of my, my career. And, you know, I had worked in a research lab in graduate school that where I was doing a lot of, you know, software, you know, writing software, doing different coding to solve some problems we had. And when I came to work for clients, most of my clients didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. So I was able to bring a little bit to them in a very small way. And, you know, that was part of kind of some of the things that we did to help them be successful. But it was at such a small scale and it was based just on what I personally knew and had done. There wasn't any broader infrastructure within, you know, my team at ICF or even within the government at that time to, to really take that farther and do even more. And I think what's so exciting about now, what's changed so much is that, you know, th- there's a there's so many more tools out there. There's so much better understanding of what the technology can do both within and outside of government that the the potential is so much greater. But at the same time, you know, the sort of signal to noise ratio is probably lower than it's ever been because there's just so much to sort through. I mean, every, 
you know, a month there's some new technology coming online that people are talking about the hot new thing. And, you know, if you're a mission leader within the government, you know, how do you prioritize? You know, how do you think about where to make investments? Because we can't invest in all of it. And I, I think, you know, you know, with uh, great power comes great responsibility. You know, I think, and that's kind of what I feel like right now. It is a really exciting time because of the the range of tools. But you know, it's really helpful to have a bit of a Sherpa to help you sort through it all and, and set priorities. And um, I think, you know, certainly something that you know that the top firms I think in our industry really do a good job of, and that's certainly what we try to do. So you use the word priorities. What what are some of the things that you're prioritizing right now or you're seeing happening within the industry that you think should be prioritized within government? I think the first thing is, is really that, you know, where I've talked about the sort of the balance of the technology, the people and the, the domain. I think that's probably the, the first thing, but um, beyond that, it's really, I think when these, you know, government leaders have these really, you know, aggressive and ambitious goals and don't build in a lot of early small wins, they have a hard time sustaining and driving the types of outcomes they want. So I think what we've really been encouraging and, and we're seeing some uptick of this is, you know, let's focus on some, you know, those early, you know, quick start wins and building momentum. You know, yeah, exactly. Because then you, you know, it gives you a chance to see what's going to work because sometimes your grand vision may have missed some nuance that was kind of hidden. And, and, and then when you start doing some, you realize, oh, wow, people aren't using information this way. They're using it this other way. And if we just made this change and it, it allows you to make more no regrets decisions. And I think that's where the, you know, the low code, no code platforms, you know, we work with, you know, all, all the big ones, you know, ServiceNow, Appian, Salesforce. That's really where they can help because they, you know, it provides this platform. You can really do things that would take months and months in like, you know, a few days or maybe a few weeks at a much lower cost. So you can experiment a little bit easier without, you know, having to go down the, this huge, you know, transformative path that at the end, you know, we all want to avoid being the next healthcare.gov, right? That was, you know, such a, a black eye in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, part of that was it was a really ambitious agenda. And, yeah. you know, it would have been hard for anybody to be successful given what they were trying to accomplish and the time they were trying to accomplish it in. And I think, you know, if you don't have the requirement that things are that moving that fast and these incremental changes that you can build on and start getting some momentum, you know, we found are often a lot, a lot of times more successful. Healthcare.gov is a really good example. I wonder how much do you think consumer expectation at that point in time? We talk so much about co consumer expectation around CX narratives, right, and, and digital experience and all of that. But something like healthcare.gov, I could absolutely see consumer expectations driving the, the agenda, trying to get to that big win at a faster rate instead of trying to do it in a way that felt more manageable. Do you think that's something that is maybe putting off or slowing down some of the the programs within government like healthcare.gov and others? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I, I think, you know, what I and I wasn't involved in that that project. So some of this is based on what I've read and folks that I've talked to that were that were involved. I think a lot of the problems there was that the the needs were not well were not well enough defined up front. 
So sort of like trying to build the airplane, you know, while you're in the air. And yeah. I think that's kind of where that project probably had its biggest challenges. But I, I do think you make a good point that the expectations that citizens have, they don't care the difference between Google and a government site. Those are both sites that they go to when they need something, you know. And yeah. I think the expectations are that they'll have a very uh, similar experience regardless of, of where they're going online. And I, I think, you know, I think a lot of us are hopeful that the EO really indicates, you know, the government putting a higher value on, you know, citizen experience, customer experience, because I think that's often sort of an afterthought and it has to be done up front. If you don't spend the time in the design, it doesn't matter what you do when you start developing, you know, the solution. It's not it's, it's not going to resonate because you just haven't put the work in. And you know, some of that is in the way that procurements are evaluated. You know, if you don't, you know, give points for a robust, you know, design at the front and you're really just looking at what the hotshot solution is, it may be this really cool solution, but it may not deliver because it's not really fit for purpose. And I think that's, I think, what we would like to see more of. And the EO certainly sends a signal that that the administration wants the same thing, which is just more thought and time put in up front and then then let's move let's move as fast as we can let's use you know modern agile you know development you know approaches all that but get it right up front get you know think through the users make sure you understand at a, at a really you know granular level what they're looking for and, and what they need out of the solution and I, that i think could could really change the citizen experience i you're kind of getting to the heart of something that I believe strongly needs to get a a good hard look at which is kind of the pr the process of procurement in general mm. right we've gone through such a long period of time where it's been okay what is the LPTA right what's the lowest price we can pay for something that is suitable to do the job and I think government, and it's one of the reasons why I said earlier on that I think we're at such a really great time to be in this space is I think we're slowly getting away from LPTA and we're getting into a period where government is looking to work with the private sector to, to find what the right solution is, not just the one that might be able to do it for a a, a cut rate price. And I, I I'm curious to know kind of, I mean, especially with your with your background, how have you seen the procurement process evolve, and where do you hope to see it go to get it to a point where we are as driven by outcomes as as what I think the most recent executive order is trying to get to? Yeah. You know, I think it's very different on the sort of mission domain side than it is within the more technology space. I, you know, having grown up on the domain side, you know, it was oftentimes hard to get in front of folks that had an upcoming procurement, even though the FAR not only says they're allowed to, but it actually encourages, you know, interactions with industry. There were a lot of folks that just were worried, you know, they, they get the heck scared out of them during those trainings for how to be, you know, involved in a procurement, you know, all these trainings. And they're sort of scared of, of making a mistake. So they just kind of shut down. And what happens is they end up, you know, 
having writing needs that don't fully account for what they really need and the solutions aren't what they really wanted. And that, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, sort of training and technical assistance type of work, you know, the contracts are generally flexible enough that they can end up getting what they want. But when you're dealing with technology projects, which are more defined, like you need a system, it's a real problem. And, yeah. you know, when I have, you know, have, have over my career worked more on the technology side over the years, I've seen that the technology leaders are so much more sophisticated, generally speaking. And there's there's certainly exceptions to this on the mission side of folks that are really good at this. So I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush. But generally speaking, it's easier to get meetings with leaders on the technology side to really talk about where they're going, what they're trying to accomplish. And that's really, really important because then the solutions that are going to be put in front of you as a, as a you know, somebody making a, a procurement decision are going to be much closer to what you really need and you're much more likely to get what you need coming out of it. So one of the reasons I'm excited about the CIOs and the mission leaders working more closely together is that hopefully they can share some best practices from the CIO side on how to really design these procurements. Because I think in some ways that's the biggest challenge because you know if you start with a bad needs you know you know definition of needs it doesn't get better <laughs> i mean there's that that's 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 a starting point and it's hard to fix it afterwards because otherwise you're gonna do mods to the contract and all this other stuff that's bureaucratically a nightmare so i think it's 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 been really interesting to me how different those sides of the government are and i think you know we need to move we need to move in the direction of of more the way that technology has been buying because they, they've got much more robust competition in those markets. It's driven more innovation. Um, they've benefited from being more open to talking to industry. And I'm hopeful that as the mission becomes, you know, more, you know, buying more volume of technology and, and you know, that they'll also bring some of those lessons in procurement uh, that the technology folks have along, along for the ride. Well, I also think the roles of the CIO and the CTO have become more business oriented mm -hmm. instead of just focused on the technology. And it's important, like you mentioned, it's important to bring them, them in. I mean, any organization looking to influence the government needs to have some type of approach where you're talking to the C-suite while you're also talking to the line of business or the, the program owners, because they're going to have different viewpoints. If, if you have a program, it's going it, to, it could be a very linear program. And Obviously, you're focused on the mission outcomes, but at the same time, it needs to coalesce with what the overall strategy for the organization is. And I think that's a change in government. I think there were so many procurements that were done in a vacuum that you started to get this data sprawl. I, I think that's driven that vendor consolidation uh, trend that we've seen, trying to trying to bring that rein that back in. But I think now you're seeing CIOs, CTOs, and the like be more business strategy leaders for the overall organization in line with the programs to drive these outcomes and, and reduce costs, obviously. So you're getting more, more bang for your buck. But I think that has been a, a biggest change or a big change within government. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've become much more sophisticated buyers over the last 10 years. I mean, that's inarguable. And I think it's it's benefited them. It's benefited the citizens. And I think it's, it's benefited industry because when when they're making good decisions, it's driving the right behaviors in industry because we will adapt. 
Well, I mean, we have no choice, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we've touched on the EO around customer experience. What were some of the biggest takeaways that, that you got back in December when this was released? Um, yeah, I think we could talk a lot about the sort of the design and the cust- the citizen experience, but I also was was struck and happy to see the uh, emphasis on you know inclusion and equity and trying to think about you know not just your average you know citizen, however that is defined, but by thinking about the full range of citizens, all of which should be served by these you know by these systems that we're, we're that we're as taxpayers investing in. I thought that was really helpful, and I, I think you know pushing us in in the right direction. Um, yeah, and I, you know I think uh, you know just generally just reinforcing that we have to put the people first in all these things, and don't let the the process shade out the uh, the real end purpose. You know, because you know really we're, we're you know, the whole idea of these programs is deliver value to citizens, and. Um, I think you know putting putting the citizen back at the front of the line and thinking about these things. I think it was, it's a it's a really positive sign. Now, how this will play out and how it will influence you know the way decisions are made. Again, I think from the industry perspective, it's really how it works its way into procurements um, will be really interesting. But I think it's a real it's a promising start. But hopefully, this will will have the kind of uh, results that the administration is looking for. I think what one of the biggest things that I noticed was the use of the word customer mm-hmm. getting getting away from citizen constituents some of the terminology that has been used empirically within within orders like this and and focusing on a customer approach um i think that was one and the other and i touched on this on another episode i i was struck by the term time tax where yeah, that really, was great i really like that as well yeah I, th- I think they're really taking a look at what a valuable ROI is back to the customer, back to the citizen. And I think time tax was one that I latched onto and said, wow, okay, government, they, they really understand it. And they're, they're focused on delighting their customers, not just servicing them because they have to. Yeah. I think if we all can, you know, sort of set our, our sights on that, then, Look, the more folks are getting the services they need from government, the more okay they're going to be, you know, paying their taxes, which means a more high functioning government. You know, this is a virtuous cycle. And you know, I think that's I think part of what the administration is acknowledging is look, trust in government has been frayed. And mm-hmm. a, a lot of that has to do with the challenges associated with the pandemic. And, you know, we've got to start rebuilding that. And I think the EO is, is part of that, is part of that process. So as we look at rebuilding that, what are some of your predictions for the next year? Obviously, there's numerous types of technology we could throw out there, envelopment of AI to a deeper degree and, and, and other things. But from your vantage point, what are some of your predictions for 2022? Well, hopefully we'll start seeing the... Uh the the end the new or whatever the new reality is going to be the end of this pandemic i think all of us are uh are looking forward to spending more time around uh you know our coworkers and and folks we you know we deal with our clients all that so uh, i am really hopeful that we'll start seeing that soon and i think you know from 
you know, a sort of a government services perspective, I do think that we're going to see more, you know, I think the low code, you know, momentum is going to continue. I think it'll continue to grow. You know, we're those platform providers, we talk to them all the time and they continue to see growth. They're continuing to have agencies that are really open to talking with them. I think that's going to continue to be an area for growth. And I think, again, I think the agencies will, I think we're hopeful that, you know, these sort of quick win, high impact uh, things that they can invest in will, will take some priorities so that that momentum can continue. Because I think the momentum is is what allows you to get more budget going forward and to can continue to speed up that modernization process, which I think we all see is really important. You know, another thing, I, I think, you know, we're increasingly in this remote hybrid work world. And I think even as things return back, you know, to whatever the new normal is going to be, I don't think we're ever going back to the way it was. And I, don't, I think most people would agree with that. So Yeah, I, def- I definitely agree with that. And so what implications does that have for government employees? And what implications does that have for citizens? I mean, what what is what are the you know the citizens or the government customers gonna demand from government given the changes in their lives right because i mean they may not work in the same you know sector that you and i work in they may work in you know you know healthcare they may work in you know you know building building cars or whatever that may be but their lives are changing as well with all this. And what does that mean that they're going to need from the government? Cause it's going to evolve. It can't, it's not going to be what they needed from government two or three years ago. So I think, you know, having, you know, all of us having our finger on the pulse of what that looks like, I think will help, you know, again, this whole virtuous cycle. If, if, if they, if the, if the government can be ready as citizen demands change, the trust in government will grow. And I think so. that's something that I think we're all going to be looking towards. And again, I, I, you know, I've touched on this a few times, but, you know, you know, seeing an increased amount of interaction between the mission leaders and, you know, the functional leaders like the you know, CIOs and those, I think that becoming more and more of a partnership and less of a transactional relationship, we really do see some momentum building there. And I think, you know, this is this will be a year where hopefully we'll get to a point where it becomes more the norm and less the exception where that's happening. I think given all the, the the needs in the government space, but I think particularly in the civilian space, you, know, you think about, you know, all the challenges, you know, with health and with education and housing and all these other things. You know, I do think that getting that tighter connection will drive a lot of value for, you know, the citizens and will help, you know, again, get this momentum going and, you know, the, what, the way the government needs to evolve in this new world that we're all living in. At the very beginning of our conversation, you started talking about the importance of data, which I adamantly agree with. I think data is the foundation of what's really going to drive us forward in all different sectors of government. But then you just mentioned the government being able to also keep up with the pace of citizen expectations, or to, to use the word from the the recent executive order, customer expectations. So. As we wrap up, I'm I'm curious to get your opinion here. Leveraging data in, in a myriad of ways, what are some of the things that you think government could be doing to keep the pulse of their customers, of their constituents, of their stakeholders as they evolve? Well, absent maybe Google and Facebook, no one has more data than the federal government. Yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest challenge isn't 
you know, it used to be, you know, and even sort of in the in the environmental world where I grew up in, you know, getting your hands on data was the challenge. That's no longer the challenge. The now the challenge is sorting through it and getting it to the right people in a timely manner. And I think that's where there's a lot of focus on the health side right now. You know, obviously with all this, you know, all these all this data about the pandemic and trends and all that, it's really put a, a pretty bright light on the need to, to to improve the ability to share and and process data. So I think you know accessing and you know sort of organizing data is is hugely important. And then you go on to sort of the the AI automation, RPA, all the different tools that you can use to then act on that data once you have access to it. And there's a ton of innovation and cool things happening in that part of the market. And you know, part of what I've been waiting for is, is there going to be a ServiceNow, Salesforce, Appian type, you know, platform to emerge on that side? There's certainly a number that are, you know, you know, int- really interesting platforms with that potential. But is somebody going to really push it to the next level and, you know, allow this leap forward in the accessibility of some of these more advanced, you know, data analytics uh, tools? I'm really interested to see because that that market is probably the way that the low code platform market was, you know, 10 years ago. So, you know, what, what, is, how is that going to evolve? I think it'll be exciting to watch because as those tools get kind of easier to use, more accessible, then, you know, you'll have it in more people's hands and then you'll really see things start to, you know, the, the kinds of uh, jumps, leaps and advancements we'll be able to make um, will just, you know, accelerate exponentially. So I think that's one of the things I'm looking toward looking to from the data side. When I, I think one of the things that, especially on the low code side, and I think it could drive a lot of value on the data side and in other areas, one of the things that it's it's really allowed and has driven this growth, it's not even just the ease of use as much as it is, it's being able to put a tool in the hands of the program owners, the mission owners. Mm-hmm. And that, when you're when you're that close to what the outcomes are, that is how you're driving the results. So I think that is, to me, why low code has been adopted at, at such a great rate. I think it's why RPA will will pick up even even more so. And like you said, hopefully, there's someone on the data side that can can do that, can make it as simple as as the the low code technology has to be able to uh, kind of drive insights and make decisions from data at that level because that will that will be a game changer. You know, that's a great point. It's really, really important that we get the data in the hands of the people that understand it. And if you are a, you know, domain expert and you understand a data set inside and out, but you're not able to do the analysis on it and you're relying on somebody else to do that analysis, something gets lost in that translation. So I think you're that is that is honestly really that's the reason that these platforms need to evolve so that exactly like you said, we can get the tools in the hands of the people that can do the most with them. Mark, I appreciate the time. Um, as we wrap up, uh, what final thoughts do you have for the listeners today? You know, I, it's a really exciting time. And, you know, so the government services uh, industry, you know, given all the technology advancements, given all the, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of need for the government to help solve some of these problems that you, the government uniquely is able to solve. You know, no one else can solve some of the problems that we're dealing with. So, you know, I'm just really uh, looking forward to seeing what happens this year. I think it's, uh, 
you know, I feel like there's a, a, a lot of things to be excited for in 2022, not, not the least of which is maybe getting our, finding our way out of this pandemic, but even just from a technology and from a government services perspective, it's, a, it's an exciting time. And uh, yeah, I'm looking, really looking forward to seeing what happens next. No, I, I completely agree. Like, like I mentioned earlier uh, during the episode, I, I think now is more than ever, it's a, such an exciting time to be in this space. So um, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm sure you are too. Thanks again for joining the show today. I, I think we've covered a lot, a lot of great insights and uh, appreciate you being willing to come share some of the ways that uh, you're seeing this part of the world. No, Brian, it was, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the invite. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access your podcasts. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.